I'd ask you if you could please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord while we look at our passage for this morning. Um, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, verses 32 to 43. Acts 9, 32 to 43. Sorry, 32 to 43. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Ennius, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Ennius, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he arose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples of, turned to him. So the, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made when she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And in turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and, she, and raised her up. Then all the saints and widows, present, send, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This is the word of our Lord. May he write eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Almighty God, as we study this passage of Scripture, help us, Lord, to see what you are doing in reality, the truth of the, the truths of the promises that you have given to us in and through Christ Jesus. Help us, Lord, to hold on to these precious promises. Lord, help us not to be distracted or to be satisfied with anything less but the great riches of the glory of Christ that we have received and will receive through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us, I pray, to see the life and healing that you have given us. Lord, and to walk in thanksgiving and to walk in hope of your return and of being with you for all eternity. Lord, we thank you for the Apostle Peter and for what you did in and through him. We, we know his weaknesses. We, we see them presented to us in Scripture, and, and we're going to see them again uh, next week and, and on following. But, but Father, we thank you that you have used him powerfully. Lord, we thank you that although you probably will not use us in the same way, Lord, you are using us powerfully. Help us, Lord, to be willing instruments in your hands. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Jane and I love reading books to our kids. Just last week, 
I talked about how Jane was reading the, the biography of, of Nate Saint to the children. These, are, these, these uh, Christian biographies are really great opportunities for you to teach your children theology and, and to teach them the, the, the encouragement that comes from following Jesus Christ, even, even in the midst of, uh, of great trial. The men and women in these books are, are superb examples of what God does through people just like you and me. So we love reading to our kids. Of course, we read the scriptures regularly in our, as part of our family devotions. And we read Bible stories and, and again, these, these Christian biographies. But I also love reading classic liter- classical literature to my children. I love reading the classics. Right now, we're reading J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. And, and we enjoy this greatly as a family. We, we usually sit down once or twice a week. We'll sit by the fire and, and have a snack, and, and we'll sit down and, and read together. And I have to say that, that Tolkien has to be one of the best authors of fiction in the English language. The, the story of The Hobbit reaches a crescendo as the, the dragon Smaug attacks, and First, he attacks Bilbo and, and the company of dwarves. And, and again, you might have seen the movie, but the movie doesn't compare to the book. He's attacked the Bilbo and the company of dwarves, running down fire and, and smashing the mountain to smithereens and attempt to kill them. Then he sets his sights on Lake Town, killing many as he reduces the town to smoldering ash as it sinks into the lake. But, but the hero Bard, having received information from Bilbo that he just... That, tells them that there's a dra- the dragon has a weak spot. There's a, there's a chink in, in the, the encrusted jewels of the dragon's armor. And so Bard takes aim and lets fly an arrow into the heart of Smaug. And Smaug crashes in, in a, into a, a, a heap in the lake, sending up a spray of, of water and steam. The dragon is dead. And you would think with that that the story will have resolved itself and that it's, it's, it's going to start to, to, uh, to wrap up. But, but that's the chapter. In the chapter we read just last week as a family, The Gathering of the Clouds, you'll see that there's actually a storm brewing on the horizon. Something else is coming. And Tolkien expertly builds the tension once again as armies are beginning to gather to, to attack the, the, the mountain, to come to the mountain, to claim the, the vast hoard of gold that the dragon has now left unguarded. Now, you know something, is the, something big is about to happen. As my kids are about to find out, though, it's, it's not what you'd expect. Now, I'm thankful that Jane actually took the kids out for a moment so I can actually tell you about that so they won't know. If you, if you read the story, if, you're, if you just don't tell them what's about to happen. The gathering clouds are going to break and it's going to lead to major victory for the three kingdoms over the forces of darkness. Now, J.R.R. Tolkien was a skilled author. So it's a great book. I commend it to you. But Luke, the author of Acts, is on a completely different plane. He is first and foremost an inspired author. Not only is he an adept author in his gospel account and in Acts, grippingly narrating the greatest events that have taken place in history. Yeah, this isn't fiction. This is history. It's theological history. He does this as a historical theologian, describing not just the events that take place, but does so in a way that reveals their meaning and their importance. And he does all these things as he's inspired, as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, as Peter puts it in Acts 
or sorry, in 2 Peter 1.21, so that every single word in the original manuscripts is exactly what God intended. And this passage, having just detailed the conversion of Saul, Luke turns back to Peter. Saul, the enemy of Christ and the gospel, has been defeated. Christ has defeated him by making him his friend. The dragon, so to speak, is dead. Saul has been sent home by the apostles. He's gone back to Tarsus, where he's going to remain for the next seven or eight years until the end of of Acts chapter 11. So again, the dragon is dead, or rather has been regenerated. He has been transformed through the gospel. And the church in Judea and Galilee and Samaria has peace. It's being built up. It's walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplied. But as Luke now shifts his focus back to Peter, it's tempting to see this passage as an abrupt change of topic. Now we know that this this passage is is part of the the whole narrative of Acts and even of the Bible, and specifically here in Acts, as as the, the disciples are going out as witnesses for Christ in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. But Luke here is really continuing the same section that began with the stoning of Stephen under the approval of Saul in chapter 7 and continued through the spread of the gospel in chapter 8 through the ministry of Philip to the Samaritans and the Ethiopian eunuch and along the coast of the Mediterranean as a church scattered because of persecution. This passage really serves as as a transition preparing us for another pivotal moment in the book of Acts. The clouds were gathering. There's a coming storm. And these clouds are also going to break and it's going to lead to a major victory of the kingdom of God over the forces of darkness. This passage prepares us for Peter's vision and the conversion of Cornelius. This is the first full Gentile conversion that is recorded in the scriptures. This is a, a, an, an event of paramount importance. And as we gather here as Gentiles, this is of paramount importance to us. Again, this is the first Gentiles recorded coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And this marks the beginning of the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 and 11 is really going to continue through the book of Acts and beyond. The kingdom of God is advancing through Christ's chosen messengers. Jesus Christ is still building his church. This morning we're going to witness two miracles, two parallel miracles at the hands of Peter. The healing of Aeneas in Acts 9.32-35 and the raising of Tabitha from Acts 9.36-43. And both miracles are followed by many coming to faith in Jesus Christ. This double miracle serves to emphasize Peter's role, again, especially as he's about to be used of God to usher in this new chapter in redemption history. Dennis Johnson explains that such signs attested Peter's apostolic authority, but they did so by pointing away from the apostle and towards the Lord who had commissioned him. Let me be crystal clear. Peter does not perform these miracles. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who performs these miracles through Peter. 
These miracles serve as signs that point to Jesus Christ and all that he does for us. They are living parables. The power of Jesus to heal points to his far greater power, the power to save. The raising of of Tabitha through Peter has strong links with the raising of the widow's son by Elisha in 1 Kings 17 of the Shunammite Shunammite woman's son by Elisha in 2 Kings 4. As Ben Witherington says, Peter is being portrayed as standing the long line of great prophetic healers from the northern part of the Holy Land. And whereas the ministries of Elijah and Elisha point Ahead to the ministry of Jesus Christ, the ministry of Peter points back to the ministry of Jesus Christ. So first of all, then, the healing of Aeneas from verses 32 to 35. Luke tells us that Peter is now traveling among the the many new churches, obviously teaching and encouraging them in the Lord. It seems that the phase of persecution has ended in large part due to the conversion of Saul and his departure from the region. And Peter now came down to minister among the saints in Lydda. Lydda, which is it's now called Lod, is on the outskirts of modern Tel Aviv. It's a small town close to the Mediterranean coast. It's about 40 kilometers northwest of Jerusalem. As we learned in Acts 8.40, this is the region that Philip ministered to after the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember, he administered in the region, and then he'd settled in Caesarea. This, so this church that Peter is now visiting has probably been, probably been planted by Philip. So again, this passage is linked with what has come before. In Lydda, Peter encountered a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed. He was bedridden for eight years. Now, now we we have friends. There's friends of, of this church who are part of men who are part of this church who are quadriplegics. They they are, are unable to to move apart from a, a little bit their their hands and feet. Well, and we we think about what it's like for for these men, and we can't imagine how hard it is. But think about what it would have been like for for a paraplegic or quadriplegic in that culture without any, virtually any medical support, being totally dependent on the charity of others for everything. Now, although Luke, although Luke doesn't tell us whether Aeneas was a Christian, it's very likely that this church would have been ministering to him. And I think this is an example. Think about how, how we can, can serve Tyler and Cody and other, other men who face these challenges in our own church family. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. So you see, kids, it's biblical to make your beds. But I really, to be serious about this, I wondered, why does Peter tell him to rise and make his bed? R.C. Sproul was, was helpful to me. He said, he asked the question, he said, why do you make your bed in the morning? Now, Jane knows whether I make my bed in the, or bed in the morning. But why should you make your bed in the morning? It's because you don't need your bed. Right? When you, when you get up, you don't need your bed again until you put your head on your pillow. Later on in the night. 
Ennius had not left his bed for eight years. But now he rose immediately. So Peter is essentially saying to him, you don't need your bed anymore. So Macon, there would have been a pallet, then, and she said, fold it up. You don't need it. You won't need it until tonight. Eight years he'd been there, and he, he just got up and walked away from that bed. Again, this is, this is an amazing miracle. People do not often just get up. People have been paralyzed for eight years. They don't just get up and walk. And even if someone is, is healed of paralysis through medical intervention, even, even after a very brief period of paralysis, there would be severe mus- muscular atrophy. And many sessions of physiotherapy before the person would be able to walk again. But this man simply climbed out of bed. It was a miracle. But the question comes whether, whether we should expect this sort of thing. Should we expect people to be healed of, of these sorts of things? And my answer might surprise you. Yes. Yes, we should expect the Lord to do these things. I believe we should expect physical healing. However, we should expect physical healing not in the sense that our Pentecostal and charismatic brethren expect healing. I firmly believe that Jesus can heal today. Jesus is just as able to heal today as he was then. I believe we should be praying for that kind of healing today. We should be praying for Tyler and Cody that they will be healed. God can do that. We should draw close to our Heavenly Father, bringing all of our needs and cares and concerns before him. Yet we should also do so recognizing that he may have a better plan for us. For those we care about, a better plan even than healing. We should pray in these circumstances. We should pray, yet not my will, but your will be done, as Jesus taught us to pray. But the problem with with the views of many charismatics is that they believe that healing is promised through the atonement. They believe that healing is, is part of the atonement. Now, in one sense, they're right. In one sense, they're right. We need to understand that theology matters. Your, your views on these things actually do matter. The, the many charismatics often appeal to, to passages we read in, uh, in Psalm 103 that uh, Tom read for us that he heals all our diseases. But even more commonly, they'll, they'll appeal to Isaiah 53, 5. With his wounds, we are healed. With his wounds, we are healed. Now that is true, but what does that actually mean? Does this mean, does Isaiah 53, 5 mean that we're actually healed of all our diseases? Well, if it is true, then none of us are ever going to die. You see, reading that as as referring to physical healing is eisegesis. It's reading your own ideas into the verse. And this happens very easily when you take passages out of context. Isaiah is not speaking here of physical healing, but of spiritual healing. The whole verse in context reads, Surely he has borne our griefs 
and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The whole passage is about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ and his ultimate vindication. That Jesus died as the sin bearer, that he was punished for our sins. And then he was, the, the Father was satisfied with the punishment that he received in our place. And so Christ was vindicated, he was raised from the dead, and will receive the inheritance. That's you and me. While many charismatics will recognize this, they, they tend to view healing and suffering in general as part of the atonement. That when Jesus died, he earned health and prosperity for us. And you know what? They're right. Healing and prosperity are part of the atonement. But listen carefully. Do not soundbite me on that. Healing and prosperity are part of the atonement, but not yet. Not yet. We will receive full physical healing, but not yet. We will receive prosperity, but not yet. And we receive both in far greater measure than our minds can even comprehend. Through the death of Christ for our sins and his resurrection and his ascension, we will receive not just healed bodies, but glorified bodies. But not until his return. And through the death of Christ for our sins and his resurrection and ascension, we will partake in his inheritance, inestimable treasures in heaven. But not until his return. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.9, quoting Isaiah 64.4, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So yes, we can recognize the blessings that have been purchased for us by Jesus Christ, but we also need to recognize the timing of receiving those things. We receive these things in part now, but we receive them in fullness upon his return. An old friend wrote me the other day who's going through a, a serious trial. Now, I believe this man is a brother in the Lord. However, he has been heavily influenced by the word faith movement, and we've had a, a fair bit of communication over the past few years, mainly about this, this issue, about what's taking place in his life. I, I really have not said a whole lot to him. Mainly, I've listened to him in his pain. But when he wrote me again the other day, I wrote back telling him that I'm, I'm grieved with the situation that he is still experiencing, that it has not been resolved. And he replied, gently correcting me for not using the word yet. He, he, he said to me that, that please don't, don't use the word yet. Please don't say that my situation has not been resolved yet because it, it creates, it puts a downer on, on the mood because I'm, because I know that God is going to bring resolution of this. And he believes that God has told him through, through various signs and, and words from the Lord. 
But I again emphasized with him, again tried to empathize with him in his pain and, and emphasized and reaffirmed my belief that the Lord is able to fix this problem. I told him that I believe that, that the Lord can fix it in a way that is far more glorious than even he could imagine and assured him of my prayers to that end. However, I encouraged him to hold on to the clear promises of God's word, far better promises than an end to this trial. I reminded him that God has a plan for him, even in his suffering, that his suffering is temporary, but God's glory in and through him is eternal. And that's the reality for all of us in our suffering. Right? We're, we're, we're not guaranteed an easy ride in this life. We're not promised that everything is going to work out well. We will suffer. Suffering is part and parcel of living in a fallen world. We are new creatures in Christ, but we still experience the effects of the fall through our sin and the, the sins of others and, and through the, the fact that this, this, this world has not yet been redeemed. It's not yet been, it's, we have not yet witnessed the, the new creation of what it's going to be one day. We're going to suffer in this life. But may God help us not to be satisfied with anything less than his promises for us in the gospel. May God help us to be consumed with living for his glory and anticipation of the blessings of eternal life with Jesus Christ. You see, when, when your life is, is built on those promises, that the various circumstances and situations, trials and pain that you experience in this life, they, they take on a different meaning. Because you begin to see them as as opportunities for you to glorify God in the midst of your pain, to follow in the footsteps of Christ as he suffered. As Jesus said to his disciples in John 16.33, In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We have already received something far, far greater than physical healing. We have received spiritual healing. Now, does this miracle of, of the healing of the paralyzed man remind you of something? Think back to Luke's gospel account. Remember one of the, the first miracles that, that Jesus performed is recorded in, in Luke. In Luke 5, 17 to 26, when when there's a crowd pressing in to see Jesus and to experience healing at Jesus' hands. Remember the four friends who cut a hole in the roof and lowered the paralyzed man down in front of Jesus? What does Jesus say to the man? Very similar to what, he, what Peter says to Aeneas here in Acts 9. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. You're not going to need your bed anymore, at least not until tonight. This deliberate, Luke here is highlighting the line that is drawn from Jesus to Peter. Through Peter, Luke is saying that the ministry of Jesus Christ is continuing. Peter's link with Christ and his apostolic credentials are being confirmed in preparation for his ministry to the Gentiles in chapter 10, which would have been absolutely shocking. We'll talk about this next week. Absolutely shocking for the Jews. Peter is continuing to do what Christ did. 
And so like the, the seal on that scroll from the kings, we talked to the children. This is further evidence of the seal of, of Peter's apostolic ministry from Jesus Christ. That he is going now as an ambassador for the king, carrying the message of peace with the king. And in the miracle in Luke chapter 5, what was the first thing that Jesus said to the paralytic? Before we told him to, to, to rise and take up your mat and go home, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Remember the Pharisees were there listening and they were they're like, wondering, who is this who has the authority to forgive sins? And Jesus responded saying, which is easier to say? Son, you're, you're saying your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, rise, take up your mat and go home. Jesus was showing in the healing of that paralytic in Luke chapter 5 that his sins were forgiven. As we've seen again through Luke and Acts, that the miracles are living parables. They're pointing to a deeper spiritual reality. This healing of paralysis by Jesus Christ points to the healing of spiritual paralysis by Jesus Christ. We were once slaves to sin, completely unable to do anything good, unable to do anything to please God. But Christ has healed us. He has set us free and we are now able in his strength through the power of the Holy Spirit to do anything that he calls us to do. And so in that vein, Peter makes it quite clear that it is not he himself, but Jesus Christ who does the healing. He said, Jesus Christ heals you. Peter recognized that he recognized that he is only a vessel through which the power of the Lord operates. And that's true not just for Peter, not just for miracles, but when any Christian does anything good, we are merely vessels of the Lord's power. We are merely instruments in the Redeemer's hands. Jesus Christ does it in us and through us, and he gets the glory. Like the City of Light song, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Now, Lydda was a small town. And every, everybody would have known Aeneas and his paralysis. So word got around. And, and the residents of Lydda and the surrounding region of Sharon saw what had happened to him. And Luke says that all the residents turned to the Lord. They didn't turn to Peter. They turned to the Lord. But now when Luke says here that they all turned to the Lord, this is hyperbole. He's not saying that literally that, that they all became Christians, but that a great number of the residents of Lydda and Sharon became Christians. Now we need to remember here that people don't come to faith directly through miracles. Many saw Jesus' miracles and rejected him. Remember when when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in, in John chapter 11, what was the Pharisees' response? They didn't, they didn't believe in Jesus. Rather, they plotted to kill Jesus and to kill Lazarus so that others wouldn't believe in Jesus. Miracles in and of themselves do not produce faith. The proclamation of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit produces faith. So, so this miracle opened the door for Peter to proclaim the gospel and many came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. I'm sure not just through Peter, but, but through, through others in the church and from Aeneas himself. 
So the sign opened the door for the proclamation of the gospel. And this was especially important at a time when the New Testament had not yet been written down. In fact, many, much of the New Testament hadn't even taken place yet. So that's the healing of Ennius. Well, now let's look at the raising of Tabitha from verses 36 to 43. The scene now shifts to Joppa. The location, this is the location of, of modern Tel Aviv also on the Mediterranean coast in Israel. It was again part of the region where Philip had ministered. And there was a church there, again very likely planted by Philip before he continued on to Caesarea. There was a woman in the church named Tabitha. That's her name in Aramaic. Luke supplies the Hellenized version of the name for his Greek-speaking recipient of this account, Theophilus. And the name, whether, whether Tabitha or Dorcas, means gazelle. And Luke calls her a disciple. This is actually the only time in the New Testament where the female version of the term disciple is used. We mustn't make more of this than the fact that she's been presented as being clearly a follower of Jesus Christ. Her spiritual fruit reinforces this. She was full of good works and charity. She loved and served God by loving and serving others. You know, many here in this church, many of you are full of of good works and charity. Many of you are loving and serving God by loving and serving each other. May that love abound in our body for the glory of Christ and for the building of his church. But Dorcas became sick and died. And according to custom, her, her body was washed and she was laid in an upper room in preparation for burial. Now this church in Joppa that was probably meeting in her house, this is probably an upper room in her own house. And so Joppa is, is near to Lydda. It's about 20 kilometers away. So, so when the disciples found out that, that Peter was in Lydda, they sent, they sent two disciples as messengers to, to ask Peter, to urge Peter, saying, please come to us without delay. Now, our familiarity with the story shouldn't make us read our expectations into it, but you know, we, we, we read this thinking that, oh yeah, they, were, they, were, they thought that Peter was going to raise her from the dead because we know what happens. But that's probably not what actually happened. They probably did not expect Peter to raise Dorcas from the dead. Remember, she'd been prepared for burial. And remember also that, that resurrection from the dead was an uncommon occurrence. To that point, nobody that we're aware of, has been raised from the dead by the apostles, or through the apostles. It's even rare in the Gospels. Apart from Jesus' own resurrection from the dead, and apart from the, those in Jerusalem who were, were raised from the dead upon his resurrection, the, the Gospels only record three people being raised from the dead by Jesus Christ. The, the son of the woman of Nain in Luke 7, Jairus' daughter in Luke 8, and the raising of Lazarus in John 11. That's the only three that the scriptures record for us. So more likely, the Christians in Joppa were, were simply eager for Peter to come and to minister to them and to comfort them in their grief. Brothers and sisters, you have no idea how much visiting a person in his or her grief can mean. You don't need to say much. In fact, quite often, it's better to say little. Simply sitting there with them listening to them or just sitting and sitting in silence with them and praying 
a short prayer with them and reading a short passage of Scripture would suffice. And you can minister to those, your brothers and sisters, in their grief. And it's probably what they expected. But they're about to get something else. Peter rose and went to Joppa. Now, the 20 kilometers would take probably about three hours at a, at a brisk pace. And when Peter got there, they, they took him to the upper room. The outpouring of grief was overwhelming. All the widows had gathered there and they were weeping. Dorcas, Dorcas had had a very practical and personal ministry among them. They showed Peter the, the tunics and, and other garments that she had made for them. Very likely, these, these were the very clothes that they were wearing at that moment. So now Peter sent them out of the room and knelt down and prayed and turned to the body and said, Tabitha, arise. Does that sound familiar? Again, there, there are other resurrections in the scriptures. In fact, there, there are three resurrections in the scriptures that are parallel to this event. I just mentioned Jesus healing of Jairus' daughter a few moments ago, and, and that really is the primary parallel. But, but there are two more healings, two Old Testament healings, that this is, that this is meant to, to cause us to think of. The healing of, of Elisha, through Elisha, in 2 Kings 4. The widow and the widow, sort of the healing of the son of Zarephath in 1 Kings 17 by Elijah. This is especially similar. Let's just turn there for a moment to 1 Kings chapter 17. Very similar. So 1 Kings 17, 17. Well, first of all, look down at verse 19. As Peter, or sorry, as Elijah took the boy from his mother's arms, so she's removed from the scene as a witness. And he takes her to an upper room. Again, two very similar details to what we see with his healing here. And then his prayer in verses 20 and 21. And then in 22, he, he's, he's revived, he's resurrected. And then verse 23, Elijah took the child and brought him down and presented him to his mother. Again, very similar circumstances to what we see here in Acts chapter 9. So Peter is being presented here as continuing in the ministry of the great Old Testament prophets. Again, Peter's credentials as an apostle are being confirmed in preparation for what we're going to see in chapter 10. But listen carefully. With Elijah and Elisha, as with Peter, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who accomplished the resurrection. So in reality, Elijah and Elisha and Peter, again, were merely vessels through whom the power of the Lord Jesus operated. So the ministry of Jesus Christ is being presented as continuing through his chosen instruments. And now let's turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, this is really the, the primary parallel. Luke chapter 8 is in verses 40 to 56. First of all, we see that, that a messenger is sent to Jesus, much like messengers had gone to Peter to inform him about the, this sick person. Here, here a child there, the, the, the woman Tabitha. 
sick and, and dying here in this passage. And so we have, we have a break here with the, where the, it's interrupted with a woman with, with a discharge who Jesus heals. And then it picks up again in verse 49 where someone came and from the ruler's house and said, that the, your daughter's dead. This woman has died. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. But, but, Jesus saying, but Jesus on hearing this answered him, do not fear, but only believe and she all will be well. And then he came to the house. And again, there's a removal of witnesses apart from Peter and James and John. So Peter was there at this miracle. They said, do not weep for she's not dead but weeping. And they, they laughed knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called saying, child, arise. Child, arise. Now, if you cross-reference this with, with uh, Matt, uh, Mark chapter 5, 41, the words that are used the girl's name it means little girl, Talitha Kumi. Talitha Kumi. And then here in Acts chapter 9, Tabitha arise or Tabitha Kumi. Again, this is a direct line that is being drawn from the ministry of Jesus Christ to the ministry of Peter. The parallels are intentional. Luke, is, as the inspired author, is helping us to see who Peter is and his apostolic authority as the ambassador for Jesus Christ. Now here in, in Acts chapter 9, Peter prayed to Jesus before healing this woman. But Jesus, when he heals the little girl, doesn't need to pray. He is the one who heals the little girl. So Jesus here is still at work. He is now mediating his power through Peter. And again, this miracle is a parable. As with the, the little girl in Acts chapter 5 and, and as with Dorcas in Acts chapter 9, it's a picture of being raised to new life. Now that little girl eventually died. Dorcas eventually died. And so will you and I unless the Lord returns first. We never promised in Scripture that 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 whether we or our loved ones who die in this life will, will return to this life. But we are promised something far, 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 far greater. We are promised a resurrection to new life in Jesus Christ. We are promised that, that we have a greater hope. Just think about it. Just think, just think about just think about your, your loved ones who have died. Just think about your own mortality. Just think about how, how amazing it would be to have someone come and, and to raise them from the dead. It'd be glorious. Can't even imagine. But we are, what we are promised is infinitely better than that. We are promised that all of those who are trusting in Jesus Christ are departed loved ones in the Lord will be raised to new life in Christ. We're promised that we who are trusting in Christ, unless he returns before our deaths, we will die. But we are promised that we will go to be with him. We'll be raised 
and glorified to be with him for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, these are the kinds of, of promises that we need to fix our minds on, our hearts on. Because again, they, they, change, they change our perspective. We need to see everything, all of life, even the good times and the bad. We need, to, we need to, to see them all through the lens of the gospel, of the promises that God has given us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're told again in verse 42 that, that this became known throughout all Joppa. You can imagine, again, this doesn't happen often. And we're told many believed in the Lord. Now again, they didn't believe in Peter. They believed in the Lord. But they believed that Peter had been sent by the Lord. Now, again, normally we would, we would expect here to, to, for this, this, this to be a closure of this, this, this miracle story, but Luke here now includes verse 43 as a direct link with what is about to happen in Acts 10. And Luke has organized his material geographically, right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. The uttermost parts of the earth is now increasing. Verse 43, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now, in case you don't know what a tanner is, a tanner would be is, is someone who would, would tan the hides of animals. It's not, not too dissimilar to, uh, um, to, to one who does, um, I just forgot the word, when you stuff an animal. What's that called? Taxidermy. And so, the, so the, the, this, a tanner would be one who would, would tan the hides of deceased animals. And and so somebody who, who did this, if you think about this again from a, the, a Jewish perspective in the ancient Near East, somebody who did this would be viewed as unclean, as perpetually unclean because of their work. They would have been, been unclean because of their, their contact with these dead bodies of these animals. And apparently the, the, the process was, was very smelly, as you can imagine. But here we, get, we begin to see what is about to take place next. We're about to something big is about to happen. And so here is Peter in the place of this. And Simon would have been, would have been a Jew, probably a Hellenistic Jew, but he's here in, his in this man's house, in the house of this unclean man. And we're getting hints. Luke is giving us a hint of what is about to take place. About Peter's vision of the, the unclean animals being lowered three times in a sheet to, to show him and to show us that, that what God has called clean, not to call common or unclean. As the Gentiles, the Jewish, so the Gentile Cornelius is about to be converted. And many more Gentiles are about to be converted and welcomed into the church. So the Lord then is continuing to minister powerfully. But now he's ministering through Peter. And we are being prepared for this new ministry, for this, this really this big turning point in the book of Acts as the ministry now continues among the Gentiles. So Peter here is being presented as a faithful servant, following closely in the footsteps of Jesus as he heals through the power of Jesus. So as we close, we who 
have been healed. Not just of physical paralysis, but of spiritual paralysis. We have been raised not just from physical death, but from spiritual death. We now walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Following much like Peter. Again, not with the same ministry as Peter. Very likely that you or I will not be used of God to raise someone from physical death. But we have the superlative privilege of being used of God through the power of the Holy Spirit so that people through Christ may be raised from spiritual death, not just from physical death, but from spiritual death. That people like us who were paralyzed in sin, now through the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us, have been given the ability to serve in the strength that God provides so that Jesus can continue to minister, can continue to build his church through us in a parallel way to the way he continued to minister and to build his church through Peter. Let's commit our lives and our church to the Lord's hands in prayer. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you for the gift of healing and for the gift of new life in you. We praise you, Lord, that you have forgiven us our sins, that you have quickened us from spiritual paralysis, that you have raised us from spiritual death. As those in whom the Holy Spirit now dwells and operates. Lord, use us, we pray, to help proclaim the name of Christ so that you might raise others to new life in Christ, setting them free from the bondage of sin. Do that in us and through us for your glory and for the building of your church. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.